Um, first, before we dive in too far, I just want to say how really wonderful it is to see everybody's faces and everybody's pets and everybody's headshots. Um, you know, if you're not willing to put your video out there right now, I totally understand. But I don't know about you all. I've been a little starved for contact with other grown-up humans, and so I am just really, really grateful for the opportunity to be back with the Theology on Tap family, uh, the Theology on Tap community, and especially for a chance to talk about this really lovely book that Mike has written. For, for those of you who don't have it yet, here it is. It's called How Can I Live Peacefully with Justice? Um, and it has been just like a nice little companion book for me to return to because I've been asking myself this question a fair amount lately. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, and now you and I get the chance to kind of poke and prod Mike a little bit to hear just a bit more than what's in these um, pages about that question. So I'm going to start us out here. And I know it may seem kind of an odd place to start, but I don't know if any of you have this habit. I like to read the epilogue of books first. Maybe that's strange, but it's what I do. And so my first question today comes from the epilogue from Mike's book. And Mike, you named kind of our current place in time as a season of uncovering. And you mentioned these kind of dual world shaping pieces of coronavirus and the current uprisings surrounding racial injustice here in the United States. So I wanted to hear from you um, what uncovering feels most pressing to you today. So this doesn't have to be for all time today. And can you tell us how you're responding to it? Oh. You changed the question on me a little bit. Um, oh, no, I'm reading it straight from the email. I <laughs> um, well, you changed it from how I read it. Um, I would say uncovering is an important part of this for me because, frankly, when I first got asked to write a book about peace, I was like, I don't know if I want to write that book. Um, and then they let me add with justice, and then I had to sort of struggle my way through uh, to the point where I was excited to write about it. But for me, the uncovering is a lot. Um, but it's, for me, the uncovering is just how inequitable the whole dang system is. Um, I am, I, today, uh, we got to get a second coronavirus test for our son. Uh, his first coronavirus test is what put us in this quarantine. But we got to get a second one because we have relationships and we've got resources and we've got access. Um, and so I was able to, when BJC told me that we were going to have to wait two weeks to get his results, so we were just on an automatic two week quarantine, whether he had the virus or not. Uh, I had the ability to like push until I found a more acceptable answer for my family. But I was thinking about the other people that were in the car line with us waiting for that test. And we, I also don't work hourly. And so I'm not facing any loss of income because of this quarantine. Um, I had to change, you know, from a what was going to be a fun in-person outdoor theology untap to uh, another Zoom. But that's the biggest loss. And it, the inequities that are just structural like that um, are the one is, is what's really, you know, it's it's that's been uncovered for me in some really particular ways by this virus by these days. 
And so then if I can press you just a little farther, yeah, yeah. Um, the part two of the question is, so how are you finding it in yourself to respond to that? Mm. Um, that gets me a little bit into, um, like today I wrote a little bit about that to the congregation. Um, and it partly gets into a little bit of the, where does the book land? Um, in the sense of like, I have found that a big part of my vocation is talking specifically to people who have a hunch that they care about justice and service and things like that, have a sense that Jesus probably is serious when he talks about some of that, but don't really have a lot of detail or energy or effort or like, what does that mean? Um, that seems to be where, for whatever reason, um, my vocation has found itself. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit about my friend Noah, and there's some weird parallel stuff that I've always done with Noah Bullock, because Noah and I landed in Central America about the same amount of time, but Noah stayed and I didn't. And I always have a little bit of guilt around, like, I went to Honduras and I stayed for a year and I got my experience and I came back. Um, and Noah went and he's like actually helping his whole system protect the democracy of his country right now and is working for human rights and I feel a little inadequate whenever I'm around Noah. Um, but for me, the vocation seemed to be to come back and work in the US context, to work in a Christian mainline Episcopalian context and try to help people have access and exposure to stuff that they wouldn't and, and think through questions they may not have otherwise. Thank you. And to anybody who saw me responding to someone off camera, I am the parent of a small child. And so I try to be very quick with the mute button I've learned over the last few months, but um, you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. So I appreciate your grace. Um, the next question, you already touched on this maybe a little bit, but I'd love to hear uh, you elaborate. What was it like to write about peace and justice? Um, you know, what feelings or processes did that call out of you? Because I imagine that that felt daunting at times. Yeah, at first I said no. Um, because they asked me, I mean, like the title originally would have just been, um, how can I live peacefully? And I just wrote back and said, I'm not going to write that book. Um, if I can add the words with justice, I can write it. Um, and so, and that's snooty of me, but it's also, I think it reflected a little bit of where they actually wanted this series to go. And so I think that's why they let me do it. Um, it's one of several books in a series and a lot of them are really good. Um, but the um, the question of like, how can I live peacefully with justice was also a really interesting thing to reflect on because when I wrote the book, it took me two years to actually get the book all the way written, partly because we were adopting Silas and partly because my church decided to do a capital campaign and there's a lot of life that got in the way. But by the time I was finishing it up, it was like March of this year, March and April. I remember that time when we all thought that the um, COVID quarantine was going to be like a few weeks long and then we were going to have a, a big Easter celebration in like May when we were all going to get to go back to life as, as it was and we were going to have this thing under control. 
Um, I think that happened in New Zealand, but it did not happen in the United States of America. And um, so I was finishing the book then, and I, I literally would, like I'd put in, you know, sections about St. Louis and the amount of our tax dollars that go to policing. And I'd put in all this stuff that was sort of, you know, like internal conversations among protesters on the streets in St. Louis kind of stuff. And then the weirdest part was like hitting send to the publisher on the final draft and then having the George Floyd protests um, like take over everything again and having defund the police become a national conversation and hearing the chants that I wrote about in the book like again in the streets while I was in final edits that was that was the weird thing um, about the writing process I think more than anything yeah uh, I can imagine um, and hopefully affirming a little too that there was work for this book to do without you like it was time for it to go <laughs> well it was the publisher it was very funny because when they they wrote me in spring and basically said this has got to come or it's going to be cut off um and i was like okay it's almost done let me just polish it and a lot of it had been and you know this as a writer it's really hard to hit send on a manuscript like it's terrifying um so a lot of it was just reluctance at that point i've been able to delay it for so long but um but then they wrote me back um, after they got the final draft and they said, actually, we're expediting this. So your final edits are happening over the course of three weeks because we want to get this to print this summer. Um, and that felt really reassuring. Um, so. Yeah. We had a question come up in the chat that I do want to go ahead and get to now uh, yeah. rather than wait because it's a language clarification. Um, you do use language of uncovering as it relates to injustices. Can you tell us like why that word and how that best fits? Yeah, and I'm going to make you all talk about uncovering too um, in the uh, in the days or in the moments to come. But for me, there's a distinction. Um, you know, it was interesting moving to St. Louis. I happened to move to St. Louis six months before Michael Brown was murdered. And it was a very different city um, in the eyes of the world. It was just this sort of sleepy Midwest town. Um, and especially coming from Washington, D.C. Um, and when Mike was killed, there was this real sense for me, especially that like this reality was being uncovered. All this stuff that I just didn't know that I didn't have access to, um, all these conversations I suddenly was being allowed into. I talk about that a few times in the book. Um, but Willis um, Johnson, a Methodist pastor who was serving up in Ferguson, uh, has, talk about, has talked about the Ferguson uprising as the moment the dam broke. Um, and suddenly the black community was willing to have a bunch of conversations in public that they weren't having in private. You know, conversations is some, yeah, that, that were happening within the black community suddenly became national conversations. Um, and hearing, I mean, like as a white, you know, teenager, I never heard a black mom talk about how she instructed her kids to act around the police, to always keep their hands visible, um, to say yes, sir, to answer questions politely, because she was scared about what the police would do to her child. Like that was not something that I, that was covered up for me. Um, and it was uncovered. And I think that that is part of, I mean, like, part of what the frustration with me about the idea of just the idea of peace um 
is that for a lot of us, I think we've been sold what peace means, mm -hmm. um, but that, that I, there's a place in it where I talk about peace as a resource um, and that not everybody can afford peace. And you can hear that when you talk about like peaceful neighborhoods, there are peaceful neighborhoods. Well, that means somebody else's neighborhood does not qualify for that. So the people there don't get peace. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind when he was talking about peace, um, that some of us get to gate off peace from others. So part of it was just like, uh, again, it was a systemic uncovering stuff that was intentionally kept hidden. So it got me thinking about that prayer that the priest says at the beginning of the um, Eucharistic service um, before God, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Um, there's something about working for peace that requires an opening, that requires an uncovering. Mm -hmm. That actually uh, leads us a bit into another question. Um, you write that peace, particularly that peace that you were just talking about, can be, quote, fearfully contextual. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how peace can look different based on what our context is and how that has played a lot into your process around peace with justice? I mean, I grew up in one of those peaceful neighborhoods um, and that was shattered a little bit. Um, I talk about it in the book, but it was definitely shattered because Columbine happened when I was a high school student in my county at the neighboring high school. And so and, and I just remember like so many of the responses of, to that was, well, if it could happen here, dot, dot, dot. And that to me is just like, okay, but that means it's happening. And when you talk to black pastors about Columbine, a lot of what they say is, this is our reality every day. This isn't something that happens and we're all shocked as a nation for a little while. I mean, like kids that are um, in St. Louis last year, something like 99% of the um, juveniles who died of gun violence were African-American. Very few of them made the front page of the newspaper. So there's this, the context really matters when we talk about peace. Um, I mean, they, there's probably also something to be said about like what we imagine as peace is culturally contextual. Um, and that could be a very beautiful conversation to have about like what does peace, you know, for. For those of us who grew up in Anglo cultures, maybe peace has, you know, like quiet and bookworm in your cup of coffee. And maybe for people that grow up in Latinx cultures, it always involves family and food. And I mean, like, like there could be really wonderful conversations, but because of the structures that we live in, what we define as peace is, is a resource that's protected. Um, and so that, that contextualization matters a lot. Yeah. I'm just letting that marinate for a minute. I'm trying to think about the places where my cultivated peace are by necessity, like other people don't have that same opportunity. Um, so you mentioned you have a, a somewhat long history with protest. It's you know not your not your first round. You've been in the street in a few different cities. Um, and as part of that history, you mentioned that previously, like prior to Ferguson, it had been pretty easy for you to translate the language of protest into spiritual language. Uh, you do a little, a little work around 
no justice, no peace in the spelling with N-O versus the spelling on both words with K-N-O-W. Um, but you said that that translation got harder in the streets of Ferguson. Um, tell us about that challenge and like, how did that then feed back into your spiritual understanding? Yeah, and it's that context piece too. Like mm -hmm. I protested um, around the Iraq war, I think was one of the first times I was out in the street. I mean, I was out in the street probably younger around a Matthew Shepard vigil in Denver, but um, that's probably my earliest member memory of like being out in the streets. But um, but it, that contextual thing, like I preached multiple sermons. I've even preached one at Holy Communion about um, the difference between no justice, no peace and K-N-O-W, like knowing justice and knowing peace. Um, that, that if you want to know justice or if you want to know peace, you have to know justice. Um, it got really hard when they, they added to no justice, no peace, no racist police. Um, that makes it a very, a much harder to preach and it's much harder to preach to suburban white folks, um, as well. Like that is not something that you can easily, but the reality is if we don't K-N-O-W know that there are racist police, if we don't know the way in which the system is working, if we don't uncover all of that, we're not gonna be able to work for justice. We're not gonna be able to work for a contextual peace. So I, it, it even, it's even that word peace, like I spend some time on that, like what do we mean when we say peace? Um, Jesus like messed with that for his people. Um, for his disciples, he says at one point, um, my peace I give you, my own peace I live with you, I leave with you, I do not give as the world gives. And some of the toughest things Jesus says around, uh, like have the word peace involved, he says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Um, Jesus is problematizing this idea of peace. And, and peace was a really specifically defined word um, in Jesus's world, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, uh, it was a very specific thing. It was this promise of the empire that the empire will come and we will, we will bring our governors and we will bring our military and you will not know local skirmishes anymore because the overwhelming might of our armies will keep that down. And from Rome, that sounded great, right? Like that sounded like the promise of like, you were gonna civilize these people and you were going to keep them from fighting one another and you, but what it really turned into was the people of Jesus's um, land of Galilee and of Palestine of Israel were paying huge taxes to upkeep a foreign army um, that didn't look like them, that didn't talk like them, um, and were equipping them with modern weapons um, so that they could uh, keep the people like oppressed in their own place. That's why the folks are, I mean, like a big piece of why the, um, there's all this stuff about distancing yourself from tax collectors in the gospel is because the tax collectors were collecting for the oppressing army um, and the taxes were going to keep that police force there with you. So Jesus says, my peace doesn't look like that. That's, that's not the peace uh, that I'm, I've come to bring. And that, uh, it, it made me think about that whole, you know, like what is Jesus doing with peace? I've got uh, one more written question for us. Um, so I am gonna say if there's any like really burning pressing questions that you can't wait for breakout, it's okay if you put it in the chat. If we've got a little bit of time, I'll be sure 
to bring us back around to there. Um, but the final piece is that you do a beautiful job weaving together stories of what international peace building has looked like in your experience and in your congregations, uh, as well as lo local peace building efforts. But we know that those are not the same. Those don't look the same. They don't feel the same. Um, so I would love to hear a little more from you about how those two efforts have built off of one another or how they've challenged one another sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is you say that. So one of the stories I tell, um, I've told at Holy Communion before, but uh, so we've been in a relationship for a few years now with Cristo Sol, which is the organization in El Salvador that works on human rights. And we had, we've gone, we've taken two trips down as a church. I've gone a few more times, um, but there's a, a neighborhood that we went to on the first church trip down there that is outside. It's part of the capital sort of suburban outlines, like sort of an exurb in American language of the capital, but it's a very dangerous neighborhood. It's known as a place where there's a lot of gang violence. And the first time we went, we got to tour this neighborhood with this group of women. And when you go on a trip with our um, partners, Cristosal, to El Salvador, you come with your delegation from the United States, but you're immediately paired up like the moment you arrive with an equal number of Salvadoran and other Central American folks that are working in human rights. So we were there with a group of lawyers and activists and some college students, but there were all folks that were um, working on human rights and like and most of them were sort of middle-class Salvadorans from the capital who had like taken on this, like, I want to work on human rights in my country. And a number of them were visibly uncomfortable being in this neighborhood. Um, they were visibly uncomfortable. They did not feel safe. Imagine if you took a bunch of people from Clayton or Ledoux and dropped them in the middle of Florissant uh, and, and had them meeting in a community center. It was that kind of like, you know, the purses were held in the laps. There was this nerve wrackingness to it. But we, we were with these women who had created a peace zone, a, a zona de paz, they said, a peace zone in this neighborhood. And they had worked with the gangs to paint over the graffiti. And they'd worked with the local police to declare like, there's not gonna be any gang activity here. The kids that are in this neighborhood are not gonna be recruited. Um, this is going to be a safe place. The kids are gonna be able to get to their school. Um, merchants are going to be able to like have their place here and, and not have to pay insane like secondary taxes to the gangs for protection. Um, and they've done all this incredible work. The neighborhood still had a reputation. So two years later, we came back to that same neighborhood. And the group of women that we had seen, it was heartbreaking because they just were not, the vibrancy was not there, the excitement was not there. Um, the, the desire to show us, it was just, there was this real like downtroddenness to it. And we come to learn that there had been this little kid that was following us around on our tour of the neighborhood, um, who was obviously like neurodiverse, like didn't really speak, super sweet, was, wanted to hug everybody. These were pre-corona times, wanted to hug everybody, was hanging off people's arms and stuff, but just wasn't, like didn't have language. Um, the police had come to the neighborhood uh, they had shot this kid um, and then they had posted on their social media an image of this kid's body with a huge gun um, and they had said another rat is dead in that neighborhood and they were using the reputation of the neighborhood to show like 
we're here to stop the gang violence and you all know this is violent. So of course this kid had, and everybody in the neighborhood knew like, there's no way anybody would have given this kid a gun. Like this kid just did not have the cognitive capability to, there's no way, like this kid was, but he got killed by the police and the police were trying to pass it off as they were stopping gang violence. And so the police, that community is accusing the police of um, San Salvador in federal court around these questions. Um, Cristosal is accompanying them in the case. Um, they may not be able to make this case go forward, but this is the kind of case they push through the legal system all the time. Um, emblematic cases around human rights that get established new precedents so that other cases can go through. And I just thought like, there are just so many resonances. Um, you know, like uh, the, the it's, it's peace building from a U.S. and there's stuff that we can do in the U.S. to support cases in El Salvador on human rights like you can give to Christosal. You and also Christosal is working on several human rights cases where if we had access to um, U.S. government records, U.S. military records, because our military trained their military, um, we could learn a lot more and prosecute the case more effectively. Um, but that breakdown between what is local and what is contextual. The other thing that's so funny is you bring a group down to El Salvador and you expect them wanting to come back to do something from El Salvador. And what often happens with our group is they come back and they start asking questions like, how could we be involved with our legal system? Like, how could we be accompanying people pushing human rights questions in our own legal system? Like, what are ways that our church could be doing what Christosal is doing in Latin America here? Um, so that is, uh, it, it's, yes, it's local and yes, it's contextual, but we're facing the same questions. It's, um, I hate how resonant that story is, um, but I think it also illustrates so well that this is a work of discipline. And that means that wherever we're approaching this need for peace building, for uncovering, for working for justice, that those skills translate. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I'm aware that it is, we've gotten to our breakout time and Lisa has maybe dropped in our first question for when we return for the big group Q&A. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's a great place to start. But in the meantime, I believe um, Mike is going to break us out into various yep. groups. There will be questions. Should I turn it over to you now? discussion time. So if you're in a place where you have a question and Mike, do they have the ability to unmute? They can unmute. Now? They should be able to unmute themselves now. So and Megan Ander yeah. Cooper is nodding her head like, yes, she does have that ability. So, <laughs> um, um, so Lisa, since you were kind enough to actually already post a question in the chat, um, if you're okay with it, I'd love for you to kick us off. And could you read your own question or phrase your own question? I'm really interested in the idea, um, the sort of juxtaposition between like the peace that privileged people have and perceive existing sort of at the cost of the of peace for less privileged people. And the idea, I mean, like what immediately springs to mind for me is the idea of capitalism and how there's the haves and have nots. And I just wonder, I'm just wondering if like maybe part of the reason it's so hard for us white folks to talk about it is how much of our lives we attach 
to the ethic of like capitalism. And I might be totally off base and this might be not something you want to talk about. I just, I, that's what came to mind for me. So you don't need to qualify the question. Uh, I do. I mean, I agree with you. I, I didn't, I tried really hard to pull from a super academic frame on this book on purpose. Um, because I think we, we write a lot of really academic books in the white community too. Um, and it, it leaves off uh, a whole bunch of people um, from discussion. But, and I think that that's especially true in theological circles, like the bigger words you use, the like fancier your language sounds, the, but it also means it's not accessible. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's something around the way that we do capitalism. I, that's the, the use of resource is important. Like that's, that's definitely a capitalism like why, like peace is a resource that not everybody can afford is a capitalist analysis of it. Um, and I mostly, I mostly, my training in that mostly actually came from my gender studies minor as an undergrad um, and, and discussions about masculinity as a resource that not everybody has access to. Um, so it, there's, there's a component there, I think as well um, for a long time uh, we did, we defined peace in a, in a gendered way as well. You know, you think about all of the men's only clubs, um, and the game of golf and, you know, like we, we defined peace in a, in a, in a way that limited people based on gender as well. So I, I think you have something there. Um, and I think the more you can uncover or deconstruct those kind of systems, the better, but it, if, if, all we do is deconstruct and we don't talk about like there is this possibility that Jesus holds out um, that is what you know Jesus often talked about as the reign of God or the kingdom of God and Martin Luther King translated as the beloved community that um, peace is not something the, the, the other thing about that capitalistic masculinized whatever version of peace that we kind of have sold ourselves on is that it's also very solitary um, and not that solitary isn't an important thing, and it's an important thing to have a spiritual life where you have a time for relationship with God and quiet and things like that. But, um, but peace, if you think about it, can only exist in relationship, right? And so if you don't have peace in a relationship, like, and so it means that we have to start defining a lot of this stuff relationally, I think, which also problematizes capitalism. If you start thinking about like who's on the top and bottom of things, it problematizes capitalism. Are there other questions people want to mess with? I have a Megan. question, but I don't know if anyone else has this question, so you don't have to talk about it long, but I'm just curious about the writing process. Yeah. Knowing that this is your first published or official published book, just I know it was a long writing process, but if you could just share a little bit, I'd be curious to hear about that process. Yeah, so the process, um, so there's a couple of things to say about that process. like. Um, one, it's not something that I really set out to do necessarily. It was like some, like I had this like, you know, white boy dream of myself that someday I'd have a book, right? But, um, but I also, I like I'm a preacher and so I write a lot. Um, I happened to have a friendship with somebody who happened to be an editor at Church Publishing, which is the tiny little Episcopal um, publishing house which of course, because Episcopalian also calls itself church publishing, uh, as if nobody else's uh, church matters with publishing, right? Like we're not gonna contextualize it. We're just gonna say we're the church publishing house. Um, 
so it sounds fancier than it is, but, uh, but an editor had asked me to work on a couple of little projects that she had done. I've, I've contributed to a couple of like little guides to like preaching and stuff in the, in the calendar of readings. And then her name is Sharon Ellie Pearson. And she invited me to write one of these little books in this little series. Um, and then it took me so long that she actually retired before she could edit it. So she had to pass it off to somebody else. Um, I average 30 pages a year, it turns out, because the whole book is 60 pages long. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, it, it was what it was. Um, I got invited at this very particular time in my life. I'm like, I'd love to do that. And I'm adopting a kid. So it took a little time. I also would like to say that, like, it takes a long time to write 30 good pages. So I know you're kind of joking about 30 pages a year, but like 30 good pages is a, is a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, I'm having a hard day with authorship, though, because I, somebody had posted on Instagram a Patrick Otuma um, quote. And so I picked up again um, one of Patrick's, but like one of his books, and he's a poet who happens to also write. And I'm just like, I'm never going to write like that. Like, just no, you know, like, you want to real, read, read real writing, go read Patrick. You know, it's, that stuff's amazing. I resonate a lot with that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, other questions uh, for Mike or just things that are really kind of hanging with you from your conversation in the breakout, things that may like benefit the whole room? Well, I appreciate the time. Um, Hannah, you wanted me to read something. I did. Um, so I have kindly asked Mike to close us out um, with some of the very last bits. So don't feel like it's a spoiler, it's not. You should definitely read the whole thing anyway. Um, but I've asked Mike to read us just a little bit of a passage from the last couple pages of his book because I think it's a really helpful way for us to kind of close on reflection and action. So Mike, would you please read? Yeah, so, and, and Hannah tells you that she reads the epilogue at the beginning anyway, so. Um, but this is, this is, <laughs> Uh, a paragraph and a half or so from the last two pages. Um, and I wrote this, I added the epilogue sort of at the very end of the editing process because I was like, oh, all this stuff happened and I have to say something about like George Floyd and epidemic and this book got weirdly prescient in some ways. So, um, and now I'm reading this and it's a few months in and I'm just like, whoa. Um, so we have a choice in the months ahead. We can work for a return, quote unquote, in the same way that so many white leaders in St. Louis fought for a return to quote unquote peaceful days before Ferguson, or we can choose to keep looking to the root causes. We can keep our eyes not on the way things were, but on the road ahead. We can move forward toward a more equitable future. The work will be slower than we would like. And I'm gonna do the whole last paragraph because I don't wanna leave out the Jeremiah. So for a priest in St. Louis, perhaps Jeremiah names the tension I feel around the word peace the best. Faced with the invasion and exile, the prophet looks to the root causes of Israel's suffering. This is from Jeremiah. Everyone is greedy for unjust gain and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. If we want to live with peace, we will have to first let go of the unjust peace for which we have settled. We'll have to allow for uncovering and work to build relations of trust. 
we will have to learn not to treat wounds carelessly. Thank you. Yeah, so that's been a little bit at the end. Um, we're gonna be done. Uh, we will be back hopefully next month. Um, yeah, it, as long as I'm not on a quarantine. Um, we're going to be in uh, Tower Grove Park. We've already got the same pavilion reserved. So join us there if you can. And I think it's a good first conversation to have in Tower Grove Park uh, because we're gonna talk about the, it's the, gonna be the first Wednesday of, um, of October, which is after the first Monday in October, which is Columbus Day. Um, and it happens that we're going to be at the pavilion closest to where the Columbus statue used to be in Tower Grove Park. So we're going to have a little conversation about local activism and Columbus Day and statues. Uh, and we're going to talk about, you know, like what more than removing statues is really in the work ahead. So I hope you will join us for that conversation. Um, and I told Hannah I would show my own. I'm not going to make her do it. But um, I do have some copies of this. Um, and if you have a copy already, I'm happy to sign yours. Um, but I do have some copies of this. And uh, I will have them available in October at the, um, at the October event. And any ones that I sell in person, um, I just donate everything from the sale to Christosol. So you could either um, write a check to Christosol or to Holy Communion and put Christosol in the thing. But I won't be making anything from the ones that I sell in person. So. All right. Thank you all for coming to Theology and Tap. Thank you all for turning your videos on and getting to know some people um, that were here. And I really appreciate uh, the chance to get to talk a little bit about the book. And Hannah, huge thank you to Hannah. Big applause to Hannah. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. We can we can add some praise to God because my five-year-old did not break in here and get on video. <laughs> <laughs> my my almost two-year-old tried but now he's been put to bed by his other papa so um, but thank you all thank you i really all. appreciate it all right take care